Chapter 18 A Blaze of Cardinals Daddy hurried from the Lincoln's cottage and hauled himself back aboard the wagon. He flicked the reins, and the horses pulled away. But Daddy wasn't satisfied with our standard riding gait. Faster and faster he coaxed them, until Castor and Pollux had reached a full trot. The wagon bounced violently over rut and stone as my brothers and I held on for dear life. We passed Maisie, escaped from her stall again, but Daddy didn't seem to notice her. He drove desperately onward, like a soul graced with sixty seconds to flee from hell. When Pip could stand no more of the reckless pace, he cried out, Slow down, Daddy! He didn't, not right away at least. Only when we had crested the hill and were coming down the other side, with the infected cottage out of sight, did Daddy finally ease off the equine accelerator. Our puppy, tied to the porch, began yipping and crying the moment he saw us. Pip was crying, too. He had buried his head between his knees and was snuffling softly. Sorry about that, Daddy mumbled. I, I didn't. He couldn't finish the thought. He didn't need to. It was obvious that our father, whom I once believed to be fearless in all things, was now terrified of something he couldn't even see. The flu had driven him to his knees once, and he quaked to hear of its return. Once Pip had calmed down, Daddy escorted us into the stables. In deep and silent thought, he shut both horses into their stalls. Finally, he spoke. I don't want you boys going inside the house, not for a few days anyway. Walter and I exchanged a look of disbelief, and my older brother asked, why not? Because I said so, Daddy replied sharply. His expression softened, and he added, I'm worried it's infected. Abigail's been everywhere in that house. I think we should stay away until the sickness has had time to clear out. But where will we sleep? I asked him anxiously. I'll make up some beds in the workshop, said Daddy, jerking his thumb toward the stable-adjacent room. But I'm hungry, moaned Pip. The idea of sleeping so close to stinky animals, and so far from his beloved pantry, was unacceptable to him. Our father's frustration was mounting. He said, I'll bring some food from the house. Just think of it like camping in one of your forts. I frowned, remembering that night last summer. According to my recollections, the fort had been cold and cramped. Rather than snuggling up to my bibby, I had cuddled with about a dozen spiders. If the workshop was anything like that, it meant we were in for a miserable night. But Daddy seemed resolute. We would have better luck arguing the Pope into Lutheranism than Daddy into changing his mind. We exited the stable. From his pocket, Daddy removed a gauze mask and wrapped it around his nose and mouth. I shuddered. Wearing it, he reminded me of the men who had come to carry Mama away. His voice was muffled beneath the fabric as he said, I'll be right back. I'm gonna gather up bedding and food for tonight. As Daddy came to the front porch, he stooped to untie the puppy. 
The fuzzy missile darted our direction the moment he was free. After a quick detour to harass a pair of innocent chickens out for a stroll, he bounded into Walter's waiting arms. With a gleeful new puppy, azure skies, mild temperatures, and no school, it might have been the perfect day. Yet it was hell. Not only was Mama gone, buried, never to come back, but now Abigail, whom I had known from my first living memories, had fallen into the flu's clutches. What would we do if she died too? Who would take care of us? Daddy was more than competent to provide income and a generous standard of living, yet I doubted whether he was truly capable of raising us. That had always been Mama's job. Since Abigail had played the supporting role at Mama's side all these years, it seemed natural that the task of caretaking should fall into her hands. If we lost her, we would all be lost. The sickness and dread, which had ebbed and flowed like a tide the last two weeks, rose in my chest once more. I wanted to cry, but refused to do so in front of Walter again. His mysterious tearlessness had erected a sort of prideful dam in my heart, blocking my own emotional streams. If he wasn't going to weep any more, then I needed to match, or even exceed, his indifference. Daddy's return took longer than expected. After ten minutes, Walter's patience was pushed beyond its bounds. I'm going to go see Mama, he announced, out of the blue. She'll know what to do about Abigail. I had been lying on the grass, absent-mindedly stroking the napping puppy's belly. Now I sat up and stared at him. I was unsure whether he genuinely believed his own claims, or whether he was playing his cruelest prank to date. The combined experience of all human history weighed heavily toward the latter. It's where my money was, too. So I replied, Stop being stupid. Mama's gone. On a normal day, Walter would have roughed me up for speaking to him that way but on this occasion he seemed largely unaffected by my insult. Think what you want. It doesn't matter to me. I get to see her whether you believe me or not. You're not fooling me, I told him. But you might fool Pip into thinking Mama's alive, and it'd be really mean to do that. This heated Walter's blood a few degrees. He scowled and said, I'm not trying to trick anyone. I'm not lying, Peter. I realized then that I had a golden opportunity. I could finally rise above the brother who had towered over me my whole life. So often he had provoked and belittled me, using my pride and temper against me. But here I had the chance to give Walter a spoonful of the spiteful medicine he'd been feeding me for years, and I wasn't going to waste it. You always were her little mama's boy, I taunted, and now you can't handle that she's gone. Shut up, Peter. Walter's stare brimmed with murder. But guess what, I continued. She's dead, and you're going cuckoo. I said shut up. No, not till you admit you're a mean, lying goop. Next thing I knew, I was flat on the ground 
my nose smarting fiercely. The tears whose passage I'd been denying burst forth. Dark against the bright sky, Walter's form hulked over me. The fist which had knocked me down remained poised, ready to strike a second time. Walter, stop it! What do you think you're doing? Daddy had exited the house just in time to witness our altercation's climax. In a previous life, Walter would have blanched with fear, but something about the recent days had changed his constitution. His livid gaze shifted from me to Daddy, and it became apparent that he was far from backing down or running. He started it, Walter shouted. He called me a mama's boy. Daddy placed the basket he was carrying onto the ground. It seemed that a change had come over him also. Some undefined concoction boiled within him, a blend of frustration and anger and sadness, but mostly of sheer helplessness. He knew he must act, but had no idea what to do or how to do it. He reminded me in that moment of Pip trying to tie his shoelaces. He so desperately wanted to be like his older brothers, who put on their shoes without anyone's help, yet he had neither the memory nor the coordination to put the steps together. His helplessness and continued failure always produced the same results, frustration and anger, and tears begotten of both. It was alarming to see that same expression mimicked in Daddy's face. I forgot about my stinging nose and the confrontation with Walter. It was Daddy who worried me now. At that moment, our puppy sneezed and woke himself up. It wasn't much, but the light-hearted moment cut the tension hanging in the air. I... here's something to eat, Daddy stuttered. He beckoned toward the basket, which he had filled with a variety of canned fruits and vegetables, along with a tin of crackers and a quarter wheel of cheese. You'll feel better after eating something. I couldn't help but notice there was also a brown bottle peeking out beneath the food. This Daddy grabbed and tucked hastily into his suit pocket. Suddenly remembering that one of his sons had been knocked to the ground, he asked, You all right, Peter? I nodded, and it was true. Despite his angered assault, Walter had held something back, as evidenced by the lack of blood on my face. Good. That's good, said Daddy, fumbling for words. His gaze drifted again to the basket he had brought, and he winced. It pained him to see the pathetic assortment inside it. That was when I noticed the sweat beating on his forehead, as well as his belabored breathing. This puzzled me. He hadn't carried the basket far, nor did it contain a particularly heavy load. The cool afternoon air couldn't have caused such perspiration, and he was exhibiting no other signs of sickness. So why the sweat? I know it's not much, said Daddy, nodding at the basket. I can buy more groceries tomorrow. He wiped his brow. With a detached and faraway look in his eyes, he stared at the moisture on his fingers. His next words surprised me as much as Walter's knockout punch, and with even greater force. 
I think I'm going to ride into the office, he muttered. I've got a couple things to take care of there. Pip, who was already pouring canned peaches directly into his mouth, found himself suddenly on the verge of tears. He wailed, Don't leave, Daddy. Stay here with us. I, uh, Walter and Peter will watch you, stammered our father. You'll be fine with them. But when will you come home? Pip cried. I'll be back before dark, my father assured him, and I'll pick up a proper supper from the diner on my way home. The promise of better food was enough to appease Pip, who stopped crying immediately. Walter and I stared in disbelief as Daddy disappeared into the stable and returned on Castor's back. He walked the horse toward us and said, One thing before I leave. You are not to visit Mr. and Miss Lincoln. In fact, I don't want you going anywhere near that infected cabin. Understood? He didn't wait for an answer. After spurring Castor around in a tight circle, he galloped away and was gone. Walter took immediate advantage of Daddy's absence. The dusty haze Castor kicked up hadn't yet settled when he said, I'm going to the aisle. That was when another sickening realization punched me square in the gut. Daddy was gone, Mama was dead, and the Lincolns were quarantined in their cottage. This meant Walter was the last protector I had at Asphodel Glade, at least until Daddy came home. If he left, Pip had only me, and I had no one. Walter, you can't go, I pleaded. Not now. When he spun to face me again, I expected the worst. Instead, he bore an unexpected look of compassion. I know you think I'm a mean, lying bully, he said, but I'm telling the truth. Mama's there. I saw her and hugged her and talked to her last night. It's all real. If she's there, then why did you come back? I didn't want to. She made me. I mulled over both his answer and his earnestness. He appeared genuine, but his story sounded more miraculous than Pip volunteering to fast during Lent. Walter, she's dead. It's impossible. Maybe it is. But if anyone could make the impossible happen, it's Mama. So, are you coming or what? He wasn't angry, but he was out of patience. With or without me, he was going to that island. Our family had had enough of fracture. Despite the motes of bad blood I had dug in my heart against Walter, I couldn't bear the notion of staying put, with only Pip and the puppy to keep me company. I sighed with resignation and said, Fine, let's go. Come on, Pip. Pip pumped a cracker-carrying fist into the air and whooped, Yay! Where are we going? To the aisle, I answered succinctly. I didn't want to give him any false hopes. We'll play there till Daddy gets home. With Pip and the puppy leading the way, we hurried to the lake's edge. The rowboat, usually stored upside down to avoid collecting rainwater, was already turned upright. Walter had at least gotten that far in his nocturnal adventures. After shoving us off from shore, 
My big brother sat in Mama's old seat on the rower's bench. Steadily, he oared us aisleward, where I would expose him as either a liar or a lunatic, or where, by the most glorious wonder of heaven, Walter would shame both me and my unbelief. As we neared the island, I was surprised to see how much of autumn's color was painted on its trees. Scarcely a week had passed since our previous visit. On that day, summer's store of rich green had hardly begun shedding its brilliance, while the conquest of fall's golds, siennas, and vermilions remained weeks away. Yet this afternoon, the treetops burned with such a deep red, I wondered if they'd been set on fire. Curiously, the color extended beyond the reach of its typical autumn trees, oaks and maples and sumacs. Also sporting this unnatural crimson were the isle's birches and evergreens. It was as if they had shed their ancient habits overnight and were trying on something new and provocative. Our little rowboat glided closer, and I discovered another oddity. The island was making noise. I massaged my ears, certain I was hearing things. Perhaps Walter's psychosis was contagious, and I its newest victim. Any such worries were allayed by Pip, who cried out, What's that sound? That was when I realized something even more. The red in the treetops was moving. And not simply wafting back and forth like leaves in the wind. It was swarming, flitting, hopping from place to place, sometimes in one direction, then in another, and then back to rest where it had begun. Meanwhile, the noise which started as a hum grew to become a chorus, and then a symphony of musical chirps and twitters. Each one was independent of the others, yet somehow woven together into the symbiotic harmony of a million-piece orchestra. They're birds, I whispered, awestruck. Cardinals, Walter specified. Although I couldn't see his face, I knew it bore a vindicated smirk. By the time we arrived at our usual landing place below Emerald Hill, the choir of cardinals had intensified into a deafening uproar. Pip moaned and pressed his hands over his ears, trying but failing to drown out their song. Even the dog, discomfited by the din, whined softly and squeezed himself into the bow's tight point. At least here he couldn't see them. But there was one important omission. Mama was nowhere in sight. What was Walter playing at? Had he gone crazy after all? Had he delivered us here as a sacrificial meal for some savage breed of flesh-eating bird? Above the racket, Walter shouted, Peter, jump out and tie us off. Frightened, I did as he asked, though I kept my attention treeward as I anchored us to the rocky shoreline, watching for any sign of an aerial attack. Once the boat was secure, I hauled Pip out and set him beside me. I tried to coax our puppy out as well, but it was clear he wasn't going to budge, and I quickly gave up. Walter danced deftly toward the prow of the rocking boat and hopped out. The second, 
the millisecond his feet touched dry land, the cardinals fell silent. It wasn't a gradual winding down of their singing. No, it was an abrupt extinguishing of every last voice of every last bird. Instead of singing, the cardinals watched. Thousands of them. Wherever each one sat, it stayed, motionless upon its bow, as still as a winter's morning. My skin crawled as I wondered how many beady, birdy eyes were fixed upon me. Yet I found then that I was not afraid as I had been before. I felt exposed and uncomfortable, as if my soul itself lay naked before their divining eyes. Where's Mama? I whispered to Walter. I wanted to put his charade to rest and leave as quickly as possible. Climb the hill, he answered. That's where she'll be. I swallowed hard and nudged Pip forward. At least I could use him as a human shield if things turned south. The cardinals continued their silent observations as we labored up the high hill. Like judges at the Olympic Games, they seemed to scrutinize and critique our every move, determining perhaps whether we were intruders or authorized guests. Whatever their purpose, they remained stone still, pivoting their bodies only as much as was needed to keep focused upon me and my brothers. We approached the hill's crest. Beside me, Walter grew giddier with each passing step, his merriment not unlike that of little Pip at Christmas time. But when we reached the top, we found only empty grass. Walter strode forward, glancing this way and that, confused and indignant. Well, where is she? I asked. Though I had known better all along, I still found myself disappointed after all Walter's build-up. Peter, I swear it, she was here, Walter pleaded. He pointed at the ground. I sat right there, and she sat next to me. I talked to her for hours last night. You have to believe me. I shook my head and revealed what I knew to be the truth. You must have been sleepwalking. Mama's gone, Walter. I'm sorry. Defeated, Walter sank to his knees. He looked ready to throw up. It was pathetic. I couldn't bear to watch him another second. I draped an arm over my little brother's shoulders and, with a disappointed sigh, said, Come on, Pippi but when we turned to descend the hill, we found our path blocked, not by birds, nor by any other creature of the island. Standing before us was a person. <laughs>